0: As Jeff and I were joking out in the hallway, I'm not going to repeat my sermon from last week. (laughs) And yeah, I could use some more work on it. Maybe a second time would be good. That would be great. But I am going to refer to it, as I often do, because it's the continued story of the book of Acts and how the gospel continues to go out. It's a beautiful story, and I hope that you've been enjoying Acts. We're almost halfway through, and... Like the Rocky Mountains here in the U.S., chapter 13 is kind of a continental divide for the book of Acts. Okay, what in the world are you talking about? Let me give you a little help on that one. Like the continental divide that divides the rainfall, from everything that flows on the right of the Rocky Mountains goes into the Gulf of Mexico. It's the drainage system that God has designed in this great nation with our rivers. And everything to the west of the Rocky Mountain flows into the Pacific Ocean, right? That's, we call that the continental divide. Chapter 13 of Acts is the continental divide of the book of Acts. By that, I mean this. Chapters 1 through 12, Peter is the main subject. He's the one that's in charge. They're in Jerusalem and the church, and God, the gospel is flowing to the people of Israel, the Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, and the partial Jews in Samaria, and that's been the story of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Acts 1-8 says the gospel's going to go out, but starting in chapter 13 to, verse, to chapter 28, the rest of our, this great book of Acts, the gospel's going to be flowing more towards the Gentile side. So there's a shift now from Peter, who at the end of chapter 12, it just says he kind of steps off the scene for a while. Now, he had been delivered from prison, there was persecution in Jerusalem, he kind of escaped possible death, so he's hiding out a little bit, but he kind of drops off the scene just for a little bit so that now Paul can rise to the forefront, and the gospel now can flow to the Gentiles. And the rest of the book of Acts, that's where we're going. And we're going to be hearing about the missionary journeys, the three of them that Paul takes. We're going to be hearing about Paul standing before people in trials and declaring the glories of Christ. So this is the continental divide. Um, There's a shift from Jerusalem to Antioch, too. And the last verse in chapter 12 says, "...the word of God continued to spread and flourish." And then it says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also also called Mark. What was the mission? Well, if you remember back in chapter 11, the church up in Antioch was told by a prophet that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem. And so Paul, Barnabas, and the leaders of the church collected funds, and they took those funds from Antioch down to Jerusalem to help the believers there. They were a giving church. They were a generous church. And so they completed their mission, and now they're returning from Jerusalem back up to Antioch up north. And they bring with them a gentleman named John Mark. We're going to talk about him a little bit more in this chapter. So today we're going to see that Antioch was a spiritual church. And I hope today that Clackamas Bible Church is a spiritual church. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, It means spiritual leadership is a part of the church. We're going to see that in Antioch. There's going to be a spiritual ministry and mission that's a part of what they do. There's going to be a spiritual opposition that stands up to them. And then there's going to be spiritual victory that they're going to accomplish. But what I want us to see is that all of this happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. It isn't about the leaders. It isn't about great church programs and organizations. It's about what the Holy Spirit is doing and continues to do then as much as now here at Clackamas Bible. So I want us to see that. So verse one speaks of spiritual leaders. That's the first part. Verse one, here's what it says. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and then it lists five people. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Five people. It's, they were gifted leaders, spiritually gifted leaders. Now I want to read this passage in Ephesians 4 to kind of explain why I put gifted leaders. Here's what Ephesians 4 says. To each one of us, <clears throat> us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives, he gave gifts to his people. And then it continues on in verses 11 and 12, and it says this, So Christ himself gave the apostles, he gave the prophets, he gave evangelists, he gave the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. god gave gifted people to gifted people for works of service god gave in verse there in ephesians 4 and mentions four groups of people apostles prophets evangelists pastors teachers those are people those are gifts gifted people that god gave to the church to oversee his church But it also says in the passage that God has gifted every one of us with spiritual gifts for service. And the job that I have as your pastor and teacher here at Clackamas Bible is to equip you to use your gift that God has given you to serve Him. That's my job. It's not to do it all, right? That's not why I'm the pastor here, but it's to equip you to be who you are and to use your gift that God has given you, and that's what was going on here at the church. It mentions two different kinds of people there in verse 1. There were prophets, there were teachers. Prophets, what does it mean there? I think it's important to point out that at this time, the Scripture was still in process. Old Testament intact, New Testament being developed and written, but it wasn't there yet. Today, we have Old and new, complete, we have God's Word. Prophets aren't as necessary today, obviously, as they were back then. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. The church was built upon the work of the original apostles and the prophets. They came along and established the churches. And then we're going to see in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul, for example, when he founded a church, He trained up elders, and he left elders in each of these churches. We're going to see that as we go through the missionary journey, to care for the church and to be the leader in the church. So these prophets, foretelling, they were able to tell in those days, they were able to tell the future. Back in chapter 11, verse 27, Agabus, this prophet, came from Jerusalem and told the people up in Antioch, look, there's going to be a famine. So we need some help. And so they were able to tell the future, but really more than that, they were forth They were able to proclaim God's word. Then there were teachers. We know for a fact that both Barnabas and Saul were teachers. It says in chapter 11 that Barnabas went and found Saul in Tarsus, brought him to Antioch, and for a year they taught people the word of God. They were teachers. So we don't know who were prophets who were teachers, but that's part of what they did. Those were part of the gifting that we see. Here at CBC, we're, we have gifted teachers. I think of, just more recently, Phil Rankin, John Rowley, Ron Turrentine, Pat Butt, David May, and I can list others who teach regularly here at CBC. We are blessed with good teachers, and we're looking for more. We want to develop more teachers for the future. So, I appreciate good teaching, and I hope you do too. So, they were gifted, but they were also multicultural, multi ethnic. And I referred to this back in chapter 11. But when you look at this list of people, there's the five of them, they were from different ethnic backgrounds. We have Barnabas, who was from, he was a Hellenistic Greek from the island of Cyprus. We have Simeon, called Niger. Black-skinned is what Niger literally means. Quite possibly, now this is, history tells us quite possibly this was the same as Simon from Cyrene who carried the cross for Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verse 26. Quite possibly he became a leader at the church of Antioch. Now it mentions back in chapter 11 that men from Cyprus and Cyrene had come to Antioch and had preached the gospel to the people of Antioch. So we know that Barnabas was part of that. We know that Simeon was part of that. And then it mentions Lucius of Cyrene, also Northern Africa. So we have Africans who are a part of the church leadership there. Isn't that amazing? Then we have a gentleman, his name is Manian. He grew up, he literally was brought up in the same house as Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas. Now, last week, I talked about Herod Agrippa, the first. His uncle was Herod Antipas, this gentleman. This man, Menaean, was brought up in the same house. So we don't know the full story there. Was he adopted? Was he just brought into their home and, and was a servant there? We don't know, but he was just part of the royal Roman leadership of the day. So we have someone who was involved in the Roman culture, who understood that and was a part of it. And then we have listed last because he was the rookie. He was the newbie, Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He had come to Christ. He was kind of new. He's listed last, but here's a Pharisee. He knew the Jewish history. He knew the Jewish scripture very well, and he was trained up. So multicultural leadership, gifted leadership, that's what we have there in verse 1. Then verses 2 to 5 speaks of spiritual mission. Look what it says there. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So, after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them. As their helper. So we see in verse 2 that while they were, and then it mentions worshiping and fasting, while they were, this idea is they came, the call to go out and to become a missionary came while they were in the church serving, while they were busy serving in the church. It's really a a story of how God is going to redirect them rather than start them off. It's a redirect of their ministry. So they're busy in the church, all of a sudden God's gonna call them and redirect them to go cross-cultural, to take off and go to a distant land on a missionary journey. But it starts in the church where they were. What were they doing in the church? Well, it says worshiping. The word there is actually, some of your translations have ministering. It's the word liturgio which we get our word liturgy from. The idea is it's public service. It's serving others. And then later on, we know that this word came to came to uh, refer to a priest, the idea of a priest serving in the temple, this idea of leading in worship. So it's a tough word to translate, as a lot of them are with our Bibles. They were ministering. They were involved in worship. They were leading the worship of the people, like the priests would lead people in worship at the temple. That's what they were doing. And they were fasting, fasting, food abstaining, soul training, F-A-S-T. They were cutting out lunch, maybe even dinner, maybe even brick, I don't know. But they were Setting aside their food and their regular routine for the purpose of seeking out God and specifically God's counsel. Fasting is never commanded, but it's assumed in the New Testament. Why do I say that? Because Luke in chapter five, here's what Luke says about Jesus' words on fasting. And I think this is helpful to see this. Here's what he says in Luke five. They said to him, his disciples, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. We see this. Pharisees' disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, but yours go on eating and drinking. (laughs) There's no fasting here. We're just living life. We're eating and drinking. What's going on? Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, in those days, they will, they will fast. The assumption is their fasting is just, it was a part of early church history, we know that. And I think in our culture, it's kind of been lost a little bit, quite honestly. I hope that you understand the importance. I think fasting has its definite place. In our culture, it's more about losing weight, right? It's more for health reasons, and there's nothing wrong with that at all, absolutely. But in biblical times, it was more about seeking out God's counsel and God's wisdom and really taking it seriously, and there's an earnestness to it. And that's what was going on. I think it's important to point out that doing God's will in the future involves doing God's will in the present. Oftentimes, we're so concerned about what's next, right? What does God have for me out there? And we lose sight of No, it's really more about serving him where I'm at right now in the present. Of the missionaries that we support here as a church, all but one of them came from us. And then God called them and they went out. The exception is Terry Lingle, where we met him because we did trips to Mexico with Terry and Lori. But all the other people were associated with us. They were just, they're just part of our family, and now we support them as missionaries out there. I remember when Bill Rogers was living in duplex number one, and he was working with our middle school students. He was just ministering, doing work here, and then one day he had taken a trip to Israel. He fell in love with that, and he, there was a burden on his heart that the Holy Spirit put there to go to Israel as a missionary, and so as time went on, it happened, and then he met Vered, a Jewish woman over there. and They got married, and he's been there ever since, but the idea is you minister faithfully where you're at, and then God calls. This is a, a little story that I just wanted to read. It's, it's just Be Ready is the title of it. Here's what it says. Three months before a planned missions trip, a friend and I were talking about the upcoming event. He said to me, If anybody can't go, I'd be willing to step in and join you. This was not going to be an easy eight days, for we would be painting, repairing, fixing stuff in the July heat of Jamaica. Yet my friend seemed eager to go. About six weeks before we were scheduled to leave, there was an opening. I emailed my friend, whom I hadn't seen in the interim, and asked if he was still interested. He immediately responded, sure, yes. And I got a passport, just in case you asked. He had made sure he was ready just in case he got the call to go. My friend's preparation reminds me of what happened back in the first century at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were among a number of people getting themselves ready spiritually for whatever God might ask them to do or whatever, wherever he might send them. They didn't be prepared by getting a passport, because they probably didn't need one in those days, but they ministered to the Lord and they fasted. And when the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for my work, they were all set for the journey. They were ready to go. Are you preparing for what God might want you to do? When the Spirit says go, will you be ready? Keep your tools ready. God will find work for you. Maybe the work is what you're doing right now. It isn't always what's next, right? Maybe it's this is what God's called me to do, so do that. But have your tools ready whenever God calls in your life for something different, a change. And that's important to remember. However, I would add this. Don't get so busy in doing God's work that you're, you're not listening to the call. I think it's easy sometimes to get so involved in doing good things, doing good ministry here and things like that, that we don't have our ears open to what God might be calling. So I, th- I think it's important to have that balance. Be busy, but not too busy. And then this idea, it's prayer and fasting. They were worshiping, they were fasting and praying, as assumed, along with fasting. But that's always the starting point, isn't it? Luke 10.2, Jesus said this to his disciples. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So what do you do? Get out there, get busy, go, Oh. Drop everything, go, right? No, ask, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. It starts with prayer. It doesn't exclude the work, it doesn't exclude following through on it, it doesn't exclude action, but it starts with that prayer. That serious, fervent prayer is always the starting point for anything that we do. They were set apart to the Holy Spirit. It speaks of this in verses 2 and 3. While they were doing this, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. It's the Holy Spirit who calls. It's the Holy Spirit who initiates. The church simply responds. So here's the question. How did they hear the Holy Spirit? Don't know. Possibly. Maybe the prophets spoke to them and said, this is what the Lord is saying to you. That's possible. Maybe as they were fervent in their prayer, it became clear and evident that this was the case. That happens too. This idea of insistent unanimity There's a term for you. As you pray, as God leads, puts it on your heart as a whole. That's how the Holy Spirit sometimes leads us too. It's in the unanimous leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's always through His Word. It's always through prayer. It's always through the Holy Spirit. But there's ways that the Holy Spirit speaks. We don't know is the best answer to that question. But God chose two people, Barnabas and Saul. In his book on Saul and Paul, Swindoll says this, and I think it's good. He says, their differences would work for them, not against them. Barnabas was raised in Cyprus, a rural island setting. Saul came from Tarsus, an intellectual center, and he had been schooled in Jerusalem in the disciplines of logic. He was a thinker. Barnabas was an encourager, son of encouragement, right? Saul, a gifted preacher, scriptural scholar. Barnabas flowed with love and great compassion. Saul demonstrated a remarkable grit and unwavering determination. What a beautiful combination of people. Barnabas graciously reached out to the downtrodden and needy. Saul was naturally drawn to the intellectually curious. This beautiful partnership, and God brought them two together, with strengths and weaknesses that really worked out well. It's amazing. His choice. Because it says, the Holy Spirit, these I've called them. It was the Holy Spirit's choice, not the church's. And it was the Holy Spirit's calling, not the church's. It says, after they had fasted and prayed, so they were worshiping and fasting before. Now, the Holy Spirit communicates to them that they need to send out these two. Then it says they continue to fast and pray. Now they have something specific to fast and pray about, which is this calling of the Holy Spirit to lead these two out. Verse 3 says that, uh, let me catch three here. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The word there, sent, really is, should be more released let go of, gave them freedom, it's really a better translation because it wasn't the church that sent them, it was the Holy Spirit that sent them. You realize that two-fifths of their leadership, two-fifths of their leadership staff is going away. They needed to be clear that this was the Holy Spirit's leading, that the Holy Spirit was the one actually leading them. I remember one time, so many of you remember Gary Brumbolo. He was with us. He was an elder here, a great preacher. He would preach once in a while. He would teach Sunday school. Uh, just a great man. And we really learned a lot from Gary while he was here. Then, one elder meeting, I'll never forget this, he comes to the meeting and goes, Guys, I seriously feel the Lord's calling to become a pastor out in Troutdale. A little church had made known that there was an opening and they were looking for a guy to come in and be their pastor. And he said, and he had just finished some training over at Western Seminary, and he says, I really feel like God is leading me to go to Troutdale. And I remember as the elders, we all kind of looked at each other, and we're like, the first response was, no, we don't want you to go, right? We want you to stay. We value you. But as we prayed and as he talked about it, we could see the passion in his heart. And it's like, of course. And we prayed for him. And he's still there, still pastoring that church out in Troutdale and doing a fantastic job, but it's hard to see someone go, right? It's hard when God takes someone who's amazing in ministry here and such a gifted person, and then whoosh, they're gone. But it happens, and we have to release them, and that's the word there. They released these two to go and do what the Holy Spirit had called them to do, He called them, but he also sent them, verses four and five. It says the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and off to the island of Cyprus. God is a sender. We see that all throughout Scripture. It was God the Father who sent Adam into the garden to care for it, to have dominion over it. It was God the Father who sent his son to die for you and me. He is the sender. But then Jesus said to his disciples in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus sends us, you and me. God is a sender. We see that all the way through. But where? So they chose the island of Cyprus. If you want to shoot a map up, Wow, okay, that's somewhat helpful, but it's the purple island out there in the Mediterranean Sea with the purple arrow going to it. So why? The question is why did they go there? It could have gone any, it was probably beautiful. I think the island of Cyprus would have been appealing. Mediterranean island, are you kidding me? Yes, uh, but I don't think that was the factor that caused them to go there. But you see God's sovereignty, man's responsibility here. God sent them, he called them, but he didn't necessarily tell them, I want you to go here, specifically. With prayer and common sense, they chose this place, Cyprus, this island. Why? Number one, it was Barnabas' home. He had come from there, so there's familiar, it's familiar territory to him. He knew it. He knew this island, he knew the people, he knew how they lived. It made sense in that, for that reason alone. But also it was close to Antioch, two days maximum to get there. So it wasn't too far out. first journey, low risk. Let's do this. That was, I think, part of it. But there was also a large Jewish population on the island, and we're going to see as they minister on this first journey, the first thing that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are going to do is go into the synagogues in each city that they go to and preach Christ to the Jews first, sound familiar, and then to the Gentiles, to the Greek, Romans 1 right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it's the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Start where, where you have commonality. Scripture, Jewish traditions, Yahweh, God. There were things they had in common, but there was a vast difference. They brought Jesus Christ into some, a place they already had common ground. But then, after they met in the synagogue and taught there, then they went out and connected with the Gentile people of this great island. It mentions Seleucia, which was a port, um, on the Mediterranean, closest to their city of Antioch. And it, you could look out. It was about 50 miles, 60 miles off the coast. You, on a clear day, you could see the island of Cyprus from this port city, Seleucia. Then it says they, they went to Salamis. Doesn't say much about what happened there. And then they traveled to the opposite side of the island, on, to the west side of the island, and they came to a place That's called Paphos. Now, quick mention in verse 5, it just mentions John Mark. He had come back from Jerusalem with them to Antioch. Now he's on the missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas and this guy. What do we know about him so far? He's a native of Jerusalem. His mom owned the home where the people were praying when Peter was set free and Peter came to the door and Rhoda was there. Right? You remember that story? He's knocking on the door and nobody's believing. That was his mom's home. So he very likely was in the prayer meeting or definitely a part of the church there. So we know that about him. We know that he is Barnabas's cousin. We'll learn that later in Scripture. But he was related to Barnabas. So it seemed to fit. And thirdly, he became this third member of the team. He became their helper. What does that mean? probably things like carrying luggage, making sure that, they, the, you know, somebody's got to do that work so that Paul and Barnabas could be freed up to preach and to do the work of the ministry that God had gifted them to do. They needed help, just somebody to go along and do some of the heavy lifting. That's probably what he did. But when people, God's people, seek to advance God's purposes, you guys know, there's going to be opposition standing in its way, and that's what we see in verses 6 through 8. It says, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Opposition rears its ugly head. There's that parable that Jesus tells of the wheat and the tares. The farmer goes out and sows wheat, but then it says an enemy of the farmer sows tares in the same field alongside the wheat, And what's interesting, if you Google wheat and tares, they look very similar. And to the untrained eye, they would not probably even know the difference. And so in this field now are growing wheat and weeds that look like the wheat. And what Jesus is saying that anytime you do the work of God and you sow the seed of the gospel truth, there's going to be an enemy that's going to want to plant something That's a weed, something that looks like the truth, but it's not, right? And that's exactly what was going on here. A quick word on Paphos, where this was taking place, is important. Very similar to Antioch, and this is just a historical note. It says, besides being the seat of the Roman government, which it was, and that's why we have Sergius Paulus there, Paphos was a great center for the worship of Aphrodite, or Venus, the greatest festival in Cyprus in honor of Aphrodite was Aphrodisia, sound familiar? Held for those days each spring, hmm. It was attended by great crowds, not only from the parts of Cyprus, but from all the surrounding countries. It was a city rife with immorality. Extensive religious prostitution accompanied Aphrodite's rites at Paphos. That's the kind of town that they were entering into here, just immorality everywhere, worshiping gods and prostitution and all those things that went with it in those type days. But along with that, there's this person who stands up and opposes them. Bar Jesus was his name. I find it interesting that when Peter and John came to Samaria to check out the work that, that uh, S- Stephen had done, no, not Stephen, I'm losing sight of my, the gospel went out to Samaria to Samaria, Uh, it wasn't Stephen, it was, thank you, it was Philip, yes, the evangelist, so he brought the gospel, then Peter and John come to check it out to make sure it's legit and all that. Who was it that opposed them other than the sorcerer who wanted to buy this ability to to give the Holy Spirit, right, if you remember that story back in chapter 8, This fortune teller. And the same thing is happening here. Bar Jesus, he was not only a magician, sorcerer, but he was also a false prophet. And that's the bigger issue here, really. His name literally means son of salvation or son of Jesus. Jesus means savior. That's what that name means. In Hebrew culture, to call yourself the son of someone is to say you are his follower, follower of Jesus, follower of this savior. So it sounded good, didn't it? But it really wasn't. He claimed to be a follower of Christ but taught things contrary to Christ. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Same, sounds the same, uh oh, it ain't the same, right? We have cults today that claim to be followers of Jesus but their teachings are very much contrary to everything that Jesus said. In fact, they're, they're contrary to him. And to his divinity and to who he was as a person, not just what he taught. So, this is nothing new. It continues on even to today. Now, Sergius Paulus, intelligent, was curious, wanted to hear the word of God. God was drawing him to himself. But Bar Jesus steps in the way, he provides the opposition. That's the way it works sometimes. I think evangelism is not just academic exercise or a matter of making a good sales pitch for the gospel. It's all-out spiritual warfare. I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes because we focus on the sales pitch. We focus on making sure that we have all of our ducks in a row, which is good. But the reality is there's going to be some serious opposition whenever, wherever, to whomever you share the gospel, and just know that, and be prepared for that, and that's exactly what's happening here. There was external opposition, but there was also internal, and I added verse 13 here just as a second form of opposition. In verse 13, here's what it says, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem desertion. The middle of the trip, in fact, early on in the trip, John Mark leaves. He deserts. He bails on them. Have you ever been on a team or doing ministry for the Lord and someone just bails on you? Been there? Know what it feels like a little bit? Doubt, Just this discouragement, being deserted, That's part of Satan's opposition in our lives sometimes. He wants to discourage us. And sometimes this is one of the means that he will use. People bail on you. They are. That's just who people are. So the question is, why did he leave? Some possible options. Here they are. And the commentaries, nobody knows. Again, it's one of those conjectures. Here's a few ideas. He was afraid to travel into the dangerous mountains of Pamphylia. There were a lot of robbers there. It was pretty hefty traveling ahead of them on the island. Maybe that scared him off. He resented Paul taking over leadership from his uncle Barnabas. That, that happens here, by the way. We'll talk about that. Didn't like that. It should be Barnabas over Paul, not Paul over Barnabas. This is my uncle. He disapproved of reaching out to the Gentiles. Not a big fan when he saw Gentiles. I don't know, maybe. He couldn't handle the difficulty of the journey. Maybe he got homesick. That's my favorite solution to the issue. I think that's where it was, but I don't know. Homesickness is pretty powerful, isn't it? Maybe he feared persecution. Maybe he realized what lied ahead and what could have lied ahead, and he said, I'm gonna bail out while I'm still alive because persecution awaits. We don't know, but he did leave them, and so there's opposition here. But with any spiritual battle, we have victory in Christ. Look at verses 9 through 12. I love this. Just as Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus. Same guy, Bar-Jesus. Elimus was his Gentile name, which means sorcerer. Same guy. Looked at him and said, You are a child of the devil, enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Boom. Direct. Holy Spirit speaking through Saul, right? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, saw what had happened, he Believed. Beautiful. He was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Spiritual blindness, spiritual sight. Verses 9 through 11, spiritual blindness with Elimus. Now, the things that Paul says here, again, remember he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit speaking through Saul to him. It's not just Saul at this point. But he says, this. He says, you're not really a son of salvation. You're not really a son of Jesus. You're a son of the devil. I'm going to call you what you really are. You're an enemy of everything right. And then he says three things about him in verse 10. Number one, you're deceitful. That means, that word means you're laying out traps for people. Deceit, that's what that was, snare. Traps, you're laying them out. People are falling for it. Number two, full of trickery, this idea of sleight of hand, tricking people into believing what you say. There's some magician work going on there, literally, not only with physical things, but with spiritual things. There's trickery, and then there's perversion. You pervert everything that's straight, you pervert it to be crooked. That's what perversion really means, twisting or bending of things that are right and true. Think about the Bar Jesus in our time. Deceit, laying out traps for people. Trickery, sleight of hand. Perversion, pretty good description of what's going on with the enemy here of the gospel at this time, isn't it? The severest words in Scripture, old and new, are reserved for those who stand between mankind and God's truth. Why was Jesus so hard on the Pharisees? It's because he didn't like them? Was it because they were any worse than the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners? No, of course not. It's because they were the ones standing in the way between man and truth. They were putting up walls for people to receive Christ. That's why Jesus stepped in and was the harshest with them. As he saw them as the greatest opponent to the gospel, the greatest opponent to his truth he struck blind instead of blinding others to truth guess what, Elimus you're going to be blinded he was in spiritual darkness already but he was put into physical blindness so that he might see the truth he wasn't killed he was given an opportunity to repent you see that difference here but he was blinded. God wanted to get his attention so that he could see the truth and have his eyes open to the truth. I find it interesting that that's exactly what happened to Saul in his experience, right? His conversion back in chapter 9, he was blinded for a time so that he might see better. That's the irony that's beautiful in here. But, in contrast to Limus, there's Sergius Paulus. He had his eyes opened to the gospel. He believed. Have you had your eyes open to the gospel? Or are you like Elimus? It says he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When you don't know Christ, we're described as someone that's blind, groping about, just reaching out for anything and everything to lead me and guide me by the hand. Isn't that an apt description of people without Christ? spiritually in darkness, spiritually blind, groping about trying to figure this stuff out, reaching out for anything and everything that can help them, but yet they're blind. Eyes need to be open, that's the problem, that's the solution. And I love it that the fact that he comes to know Christ. He sees the sign, Elimus receives his sight, but it says it's the word about Jesus that saves him. He believed he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Ultimately, it was the truth of the gospel that brought him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sir William Ramsey, who was a 19th century English archeologist, he says that there were inscriptions found on the island of Cyprus indicating that only, not only Sergius Paulus, but his entire family came to know Christ. They're actually inscriptions that they found there on the island. That seemed to speak of the fact that this happened not only his life but his entire family. Isn't that beautiful? Receiving Christ and your house, right? We're gonna see that in Acts chapter 16. It's a beautiful story. Verse 13, just kind of a thought as we move forward. There's gonna be a subtle change in the program. Verse 13 tells us this. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia where John left them to return to Jerusalem. Why do I bring that verse up? Because there's gonna be a shift from Barnabas and Saul to Paul, Barnabas. From this point forward, it's not gonna be Barnabas that's the lead name anymore, it's gonna be Paul with a P. His name has changed and the order is gonna be changed. It just says Paul and his companions. Paul is becoming the apostle to the Gentiles, exactly what he was told he was going to be, and he's going to take over leadership of the missionary journey. Just some final thoughts. All the credit in this story goes to the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual church. I mentioned that. I think it's important all the way through. Everything that happened, all the credit goes where it needs to go. In a lot of your Bibles... Maybe you just have Acts as the name of the book. Some of your Bibles have Acts of the Apostles, and that's good, it's helpful because that's true, but I think a better title would be something like Acts of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ through his apostles. The Holy Spirit is the power, right? Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. It's true for anything we do here and everywhere. It's all being done in Jesus' name. There's always a reference back to him, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But it's being done through his apostles. They're going out and doing what they were asked to do. It's a beautiful way to look at it. The Holy Spirit is the one who gifts leaders of the church and its members. Holy Spirit gives us our gifts. All credit to him. We minister through his power. Prayer moves ministry and missions. He calls us, he sends us out to minister. If God calls me away to a different ministry, it's his calling in my life. And he's the one that sends me out. Opposition to the church is really opposition to the Spirit. Keep that in mind. They might dislike us, but they really hate God and the Holy Spirit. That's what they're really fighting against. He is the one who changes lives, and all credit goes to him not you and me in our slick gospel presentations. It's the Holy Spirit convicting a person, working in their heart to change. He does all of that. As a spiritual church, we must be prepared to do spiritual battle. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit and the armor of Christ. There's our power and there's our protection whenever we do ministry. We must confront false prophets or spiritual error when you sense the Spirit's prompting. If you hear something that's not right according to God's word, deal with it, talk about it, confront it, gracefully. Confront it, but confront it. We must reach out to those who show an interest in the things of God. Sergius Paulus, I want to hear something. Go, that's God's calling. We must present the teaching of God's word on the gospel clearly. Some of that's just training. What is the gospel? How can I present it clearly? How can I use my testimony? We need to be developing that, and we must not mistake opposition or apathy to the message as failure on our part. If people tell you to take a hike, get lost, they don't care, whatever, that's not against you, that's against Him, and don't take it as such. Trust the Holy Spirit's working in their life in the future because He will, okay? Let's come to the Lord in communion today.